Roots of Righteousness, dear brethren, is our topic again this Sunday, this being the third teaching. I have for you a subtitle, and that is The Form of Sound Words. And in keeping with this subtitle, you will discover that today there will be somewhat of a formal presentation that will not only substantiate the relevance of this concept of the form of sound words, but will present to your attention the way in which this has been demonstrated over the eras of church history. Dr. Peter Adams of Radley College in Melbourne, Australia, made the following observation. He says, as a generalization... Evangelicals have tended to favor a spirituality of the heart. Invite Jesus into your heart is what he puts in parentheses to make that point. You hear that terminology. It isn't problematic on its own as long as it's attended with doctrinal substance. I continue to quote from Dr. Adam. And the Reformed tradition has tended to favor a spirituality of the mind. Here he has in parentheses, gaining a biblical worldview. Biblical spirituality is at the same time warm-hearted and clear-minded, omitting neither the emotions nor the mind. So Paul writes to Timothy that he should preserve the truth of the gospel. And here he quotes 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Hold to the form of sound teaching that you have heard of me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He writes to the Christians at Colossae about the need to stand firm in Christ with intellectual clarity and passionate emotion. Here he quotes Colossians chapter 2, portions of verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live lives in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And Dr. Adam concludes this section with this sentence. Here there are two safeguards against falling away. One is the faith, as they have been taught. The other is enthusiastic and continuing thanksgiving. Dr. Adams' quotations that I've just shared with you capture the objective of these studies on Roots of Righteousness. The design here and the intent is to bring together a proper form that is to say, the structure of the teaching of the Bible, but to do so in a way that is stirring to the heart and that enables God's people to take that faith, to live that faith, to bring that faith to others in witness, whether verbally or through the lives that you live, and to see the work of Christ and His kingdom promoted. Joel Beakey, who in my estimation has earned under God the respect of all serious students of the Bible, has written the following. Catechal preaching, that is instruction in the basic truths and norms of the Christian faith, is nearly as old as Christianity. It has a long history in the Christian church. 
as is seen in the Didache, that is a first century document that is not in the canon of Scripture, the sermons of Cyril of Jerusalem, 313 through 386, John Chrysostom, 347 through 407, Theodore of Mopwestia, 350 to 423, and Augustine of Hippo, 354 through 430. So Dr. Beakey's comments, along with Dr. Adams' comments, are setting us up to appreciate what the Scriptures speak of, as already read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. There is a form of sound words that was very much a part of the apostolic ministry. And if we tend to drift away from the form of sound words and adopt a Christianity that is simply along the lines of invite Jesus into your heart, then we wind up with shallow churches at the end of the day who seem to have some version of the gospel, but it may not be the gospel that the apostles preached. And so another useful facet of catechal preaching is that it protects us from being out of balance as a church and as our understanding of the gospel is concerned. I read another quotation from Dr. Beakey. Proper catechism preaching maintains doctrinal balance within a congregation. All too often, churches err by emphasizing one particular doctrine over another. Whether this is the extent of one's misery, here I add that would be something like the emphasis of the law, manifesting how sinful we are and how broken we are, or one's experience of gracious redemption, and here I add that would be an emphasis on grace. We hear the terminology that sometimes expresses a drift toward licentiousness, that is the notion that, well, once saved, always saved. If I made a confession in Jesus, if I invited him into my heart, and I attend church, and we're entertained, and we don't really get into the teaching of the doctrines of the Bible, then what's the difference? We all love Jesus, we're all going to heaven anyway. But perhaps there is an overemphasis that is misleading us in our understanding of what the gospel is all about. Dr. Beakey goes on to say, or the cultivation of holiness, meaning something that the Bible teaches and we may overemphasize to the neglect of balancing considerations. He says, by contrast, catechal preaching, and I would add in this case he is mostly referring to the Heidelberg Catechism, which he is doing some work with in this particular volume, but I assure you that he would state these same remarks as it relates to any good form of catechal preaching, the sounding down of the Word of God in a systematic fashion to make sure that we are not in balance, we are covering the whole corpus of the Word of God, and we aren't adopting these cliches like, just invite Jesus into your heart, and that's all you need to understand to be a good Christian. By contrast, catechal preaching teaches the whole counsel of God, human misery, divine redemption, the believer's sanctification. It includes all the major loci or disciplines within 
a systematic theology. It includes theology proper, anthropology, Christology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology. Finally, as we warm your hearts to the content that we have for you to consider this afternoon, I read the following remarks from the Puritan Thomas Watson, who in 1686 wrote with his own hands, as a matter of fact, much of what now comprises a body of practical divinity, lectures on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I give these comments from Thomas Watson not only because they are very insightful in their own right, but because among the numerous catechal works and commentaries on various catechisms, I find Thomas Watson's to be very edifying and one that I turn to frequently. And so I wish to read from Brother Watson this following quotation. To preach and not to catechize, and remember, this was written in 1686. To preach and not to catechize is to build without a foundation. This way of catechizing is not novel. It is apostolical. The primitive church had their forms of catechism. I wonder if you understand that. This is largely what we're seeking to demonstrate in measure this afternoon. This is what I'm wanting to draw your attention to when I quote from Dr. Adam and Dr. Beakey to set before your minds that there are worthy ministers of God both presently and in the past who have noticed that we have to guard ourselves against cliched Christianity. We need the whole counsel of God. We need to be attentive to whether or not we're balanced in our understandings, in our doctrinal orientations. And one of the ways in which the church has preserved itself along these lines has been to turn to forms of sound words that have been put together by godly men as they sought the Lord to state what the scriptures teach in an effective and balanced way. To continue quoting from Thomas Watson, the primitive church had their forms of catechism. So much those phrases imply, as for example, a form of sound words. Once again, quoting from 2 Timothy verse 13 of chapter 1. And, quote, the first principles of the oracles of God. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. And since the church had its catechumenoi, as Grotius and Erasmus observe, many of the ancient fathers have written for it. He gives some of their names. It's not necessary for me to read these long Latin names. And then goes on to say, God hath given great success to it. By this laying down of grounds of religion cataclysmically, Christians have been clearly instructed and wondrously built up in the Christian faith, insomuch that Julian the Apostate, one of the Roman emperors who originally had some sort of alignment to the Christian faith and then turned against it and then did, among other things, the following, insomuch that Julian the Apostate, seeing the great success of catechizing, did put down all schools in all places of public literature which were instructing the youth. I want to bring now to your attention not the form of sound words 
as they are represented immediately in the scriptures. But I want to bring some of those passages to you through the instrument of an older catechal work. Today what we're going to do is we're going to see the way in which this effort to pass on to God's people exactly what 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 and other places is speaking about, this worthy endeavor to formulate our understanding of the Bible. This is not an extra-biblical effort is what I'm stating. My argument is that this is apostolic. And I'm going to pass on to you in this study a number of expressions of this very effort to give you a taste of how it's been done. And in doing so, you will also have your souls edified because you will be hearing some of the content of what these catechal efforts contain. And I am purposely selecting the first question and answers that various catechisms present. Because eventually, as the Lord allows, we will enter into our first question and answer. And one of the things that I'll be showing you is that there is no canonical first question, in my opinion, that must be asked in order to have a proper approach to this effort. But one must choose something to start with, and we'll get a sampling of how men have thought about this and the variations in how the catechal effort can take the different angles from which one can approach this endeavor. Indeed, one theological work made this remark that I thought I would read to you. The method of question and answer is not essential to catechizing, as is commonly thought, but is nevertheless closely connected with it and of great importance. The approach that I'll be taking is not going to be dependent upon simply the question and answering method. That is very common in catechal works. But there are variations on this sort of thing. I will be showing you some of these variations today. And the first I'm going to bring to your attention is a work that was authored in 1622 by Adam Littleton, whose dates are 1627 to 1694. By the way, it occurs to me to state that this particular teaching will be as I was saying, to make a play on words, it'll be somewhat formal. Which is to say, I have quite a bit to pass on to you by way of reading off my notes. I don't think you'll be able to keep up with me if it's your intention to write everything down that I state. But I will turn this into a PDF for anybody who wishes to have the notes so you can read all the content at your leisure. I do want you to get a feel of what this catechal exercise has been like. That's the effort today. We won't do this sort of thing over and over again. I'm sure I will dip into various catechal works to show you how they approach certain questions. We will certainly do that. I myself will do most of the curating of that material when I preach. But today, I want you to get a sense of the world of catechizing, which literally extends into the hundreds of volumes. I'm sure I don't have all the volumes, but I have scores of them that approach this particular discipline. Adam Littleton's work is entitled Solomon's Gate, or an entrance into the church, being a familiar explanation of the grounds of religion contained in the four heads of catechism, that is, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Sacraments. By sacraments, 
this rector of Chelsea, London, means water baptism and what they call the Lord's Supper, what we would call the communion of the bread and cup. And what you learn there, in passing, I would remark, that catechal works have often used the Ten Commandments or the Apostles' Creed, which eventually we'll read, it's short, and we'll read it probably today, because it fits into something that we're going to be looking at. But they would preach from, again, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and they would work through these statements and then expand upon them and thereby enter into a range of things God wants to say to our lives. They would just simply teach us through these instruments. And again, my argument is not that this is the only thing that the churches should do. This isn't something that the tradition within which you have experienced your Christian faith for the most part has been engaged with. You've been more engaged in invite Jesus into your heart. I'm not mocking that. I think we should ask people to invite Jesus into their heart or something similar to that, you know, repent of your sins. But what I'm trying to say is, as stated in that first quotation from Dr. Adam, that there are parts of the Christian calling that various traditions have understood better than others, and we do well to appreciate all that God has helped his people to see over the centuries. And I'm trying to state that this approach to the scriptures is not simply manifest in Reformed or, you know, post-Luther, post-Calvin church expressions. It is apostolic in its origin. It's been manifest over the span of church history. It has been recaptured and revigorated, certainly since the Reformation. Some expressions of uh, Christianity have not picked up much of it, but I think we do well to examine how it might work among us. And so I formulated my own first four questions as a way of distilling what Adam Littleton is driving at when he brings us to some of the passages that show us that this very spiritual exercise is found in the sentences of the scriptures. He starts this work with that title, Sentences Out of the Scriptures, to make his case that what he's about to do was first done by the apostles and teachers in the New Testament itself. Question one. Did the apostolic church catechize its converts? Answer, yes. Now, since this is new to you, I want to pause and make the remark that very often that is exactly the way that these catechal works will be put together. So that I could pass this off to Melody, or I could pass it off to Sister Lois. Anyone can benefit. And you will not necessarily need to memorize this, But you have it in a very digestible, very understandable, very transparent way in which you can process what's being said. Did the apostolic church catechize its converts? The answer is yes. You might think if that's the only thing we have in that book, that's not very satisfactory because you said yes, but you didn't prove it. But it never stops there. It builds and helps draw you in, you know, wade in to what the Bible is teaching. Question two. How can this be proved? Answer, from the scriptures themselves. Question three, what passages demonstrate the discipline of catechizing? Answer, the Bible itself is a teaching manual. How about that? 
How about the idea that the Bible itself is a catechizing instrument from Genesis to Revelation? Now, it's not all sorted out in its present form, but allow me to continue to read the answer. The Bible itself is a teaching manual that is to be rightly divided into lessons that teach doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Now, these are not Dr. Littleton's further comments, but I want to point out that when it comes to questions in life, as 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches, supported by, of course, 2 Timothy 2.15, when we have questions as we live life that we need to answer and think through and come to an understanding of, the Bible says that we can go to the Scriptures themselves and we can read them and we can rightly divide them and sort them out in terms of what God is saying from Genesis to Revelation. Amen? And we can train ourselves. We can have God speak down out of heaven to tell us what we're supposed to do in some particular situation. And this is exactly what Jesus believed. For example, when He was trying to help the Pharisees to understand His ministry and mission, and they were all over the map and not understanding who he was and persecuting him and resisting him, he said to them in John chapter 5 and verse 30, search the scriptures. There's your answer. As you live through life, as you are seeking God about his will for your life, or again, trying to understand the answer to a question, he says, search the scriptures. Jesus would say things like this, have you never read in the scriptures? And so, I'm underscoring the fact that the Bible is a teaching manual that has to be searched, that has to be read. Question four. Do any biblical passages show direct evidence of apostolic catechizing? In other words, do you have anything more specific than just telling us that the Bible is a teaching manual? Do any particular passages actually show the apostles doing this? Answer, yes. The following are noteworthy. And Adam Littleton gives as his first passage, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. I want you to know that I am focusing in on the second passage he gives us, which is 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, and hence the subtitle of this teaching, The Form of Sound Words. And I'm choosing that on purpose because of the frequency with which that particular verse is used in the various catechisms because they see that they are fulfilling an apostolic directive by forming our understanding of the Bible, by creating a form of sound words and not simply just preaching from week to week, but forming or putting this in a system of statements, a form, a formal set of statements about what we should believe so that the churches can be protected because we know what we believe about these questions. But nonetheless, if you followed what I was just stating, I want to say that nonetheless, it's not just the form of sound words that understood properly enables us to realize the apostles had these form of sound words. They had various confessions that the church repeated and learned by rote. That's how they trained the disciples. That's how they trained their children. And, And it's manifest in some of the statements of the Bible. You'll hear things like, this is a faithful saying, for example. 
we'll look at some of that at some other time. But now I just want to give you some of the language that points to that discipline. So first, Hebrews 5 and verse 12. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, which means the rudiments of the faith. Now you can think of that idea as just meaning there must be some first principles in the Christian faith, some things that are a little bit more important than others. We don't exactly know what they are, and they're not written down anywhere. But there must be something that's a first principle, and whatever these first principles are, you have need to be taught them again. But if someone from the Hebrew churches were to ask, and what exactly are those first principles again? You might not think that there's a list that would be repeated back to them to state, don't you remember what you were catechized with? These are the first principles that we gave you, the rudimentary understandings of the Christian faith that we gave you, the doctrine of baptism and repentance and the laying on of hands and so on. But what I'm stating is what you're actually reading there is language that points back to an apostolic practice whereby they set down the first principles for the catechumenoi, the new believers, to read and to understand and to get down in their hearts. And we would do well to have something like that in our own lives so that we are trained up in the knowledge of the Word. You know, we have some things that we've learned, that we've memorized, and we have a mechanism by which to help new believers and our children to, as it were, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second passage that Adam Littleton gives in this work is, as I've stated, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 and 14. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Jesus Christ. That good thing that good thing, the good thing, it's, it's definite, it's a specific good thing. It's this form of sound words that Paul gave to Timothy, which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. Here again, you can think of this form of sound words, this good thing that was committed unto Timothy from Paul as something amorphous, something undefined, something that stands just generally for, you know, the kind of preaching that that Paul did. You know what I mean? Hey, Timothy, hold on to the kind of preaching that I did, the form of sound words. You know, just sort of reflect back on what I preached and put a few points together and hold fast to that. And that, that is the good thing. That is what was committed on to you, Timothy. Well, certainly, Paul does want him to hold on to all that Paul preached. But the terminology of the word form, which is built on the word tupos, which means a type or an example, gives us the impression that there was a standard. There was an articulated set of first principles that had been committed to the believers so that they would know what the faith is that they were to earnestly contend for at least in its first principles, and that they were charged with keeping this faith, and they could thereby teach others and not guess at whether they're representing the Apostles' doctrine accurately or not. The NASB translates form as retain the standard. Retain the standard of sound words. 
And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, we have the only other time that the exact same Greek word that is translated the form of sound words in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, we have the only other time it's used and the verse sounds like this. Howbeit, for this cause, Paul says, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern. Same word, for a form, for a standard, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. I'm not suggesting that's a slam dunk proof of what I'm suggesting to you, that the apostles used formulations of doctrinal statements in order to instruct the new believer or the Christian in general. But when you see this terminology, you know, in its semantic range, including the idea of a pattern, you get a more definite notion than just the idea of Paul saying to Timothy, you know, I've preached for a long time, try to hold on to that big bucket of stuff, you know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe the reason why some people fall away from the faith or get deceived is because they're, they're in an environment that expects you to just keep the big bucket of doctrine that comes to you week after week after week after week and just keep filling that bucket and you're supposed to just keep it all as opposed to being able to put your attention on some specific fundamental statements that are explicating what the Scriptures teach. And we could digress into the question of, do those standards then become canonical? The short answer is no. But the caveat to someone who then would dismiss the need to catechize because they would say, well, I have the Bible, that's the only catechism I need, it has to be rightly divided in order to arrive at the doctrine, the reproof, the correction, the instruction in righteousness. Do you understand what I mean? We have to rightly divide it so I can give you the doctrine, the reproof your ears need to hear, the instruction. And what I'm saying to you is, even if you were to say that I don't think preaching in a catechism form is apostolic or the mind of the Lord, I think we should just preach from the Bible week after week after week. And we should just try to retain the bulk of all of that teaching over against giving us specific things to, as it were, hang our hat on so we can think clearly and maybe even go back and work through some questions as needed on the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the triunity of God or the doctrine of the simplicity of God or regeneration or reconciliation or sanctification or the second coming of the Lord Jesus, etc., Someone argues, no, we shouldn't break these things down with that sort of specificity. Just go through the Bible, exposit the passages, just preach the Bible in general, and God's people should just retain all that stuff. That's what they did in the New Testament, you might say. Well, I would simply observe that you're still dealing with a man taking the Bible and preaching it to you. You're still memorizing what men have preached to you over the pulpits. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we're till, unless you're just going to take the Bible and literally puree it and swallow it and think you're going to get the scriptures in you that way, then it's a little bit silly, in my opinion, to get kind of nitpicky about the method that one uses to accomplish what we talked about in our first teaching, that the ministry is called to train up the believer through preaching into roots of righteousness, the second teaching, so that we grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, 
A couple of commentators who wrote on 2 Timothy make this observation. I say a couple of commentators because it was a joint effort for this particular commentary. Robinson and Wall are their last names. They write, rather than reading the book of 2 Timothy as Paul's, quote, last will and testament, as many do, we see this as a letter of succession that sets out a pattern of instruction received from Paul, chapter 1, verse 13, he gives as a reference, that will be used to catechize the future church into the apostolic faith. I think there's a strong argument for that idea. Then Adam Little gives the following verse as manifesting that the scriptures themselves teach this approach to instructing God's children. He quotes Proverbs 22 and verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I don't want to overemphasize any particular point, so please understand that before you hear what else I have to say. But I've noticed in certain Christian circles that thought when they first started having children, they would just bring their children to church, they would hear preaching, and their children would never leave the faith. And they never thought about actually literally catechizing your children, you know, presenting questions to them and answering those questions and seeing that they would learn what those questions are and what those answers are. And maybe your notion of what training up a child should include is not as sound as some other church traditions that literally do that with their children. They literally take some catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and they train their children up. They read these questions and they present the answers with the scriptural proofs and maybe share some things along the lines as their heart wants to discuss more with their children what these points mean. And over time, the children begin to get acquainted with the gospel message, with the story and, you know, the the doctrine of the Bible, where the worldview of the scriptures is coming from. Now, naturally, only the Spirit of God can make any of this effective in anyone's heart. But there are better ways of pedagogical approach than others. In other words, I'm saying that just because the Holy Spirit at the end of the day, has to give the increase doesn't mean we don't give our attention to the method that we're using to teach. Remember, as we learn of Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 36, Jesus was found at the young age of 12 years old in the temple, and he was doing what? He was listening to the doctors and asking them questions. Maybe he had been catechized at home, and he had some things that he had learned from his parents, or he had formulated his own questions, and, well, he was listening and answering questions. I mean, there's nothing more fundamentally true about the catechal exercise than asking questions and hearing answers. Psalm 34, verses 11 through 14, I'll end with this. It is the case that Littleton gives more passages than just the ones I'm giving to you, but I'm going to move on after I read from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 reads like this, Come! Ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, what do you suppose that should look like? All I'm suggesting to you is that we should be open to a method of teaching that has some structure to it if we've never thought about that before. I'm saying to you that there are many instruments out there. There are many tools out there 
that have already done the work that we can draw from in order to teach our own hearts and to teach our children and to teach others that God sends us to minister to, that we love, that we want to help to grow in the faith. Come, ye children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And maybe I will do it in a way that I've thought through and I've formulated and I've wrote down some questions and some answers and you can take it home and you can work through it systematically and I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. I mean, if you're going to learn math, if someone says, come on to me, ye children, hearken unto me and I'm going to teach you arithmetic. Do you just expect the child to gather, you know, the essence of math through talking about various equations and various aspects of arithmetic, you know, over time. You talk about subtraction and division and exponents and you toss this stuff out here and there and they're supposed to just sort it out. Well, of course not. How many things do we teach that way and are very effective? You know, you're going to be something like me. I forget exactly what the circumstance was. Yeah, I do remember now. I was installing something not that long ago and I didn't read the directions. And I ran into a little bit of a struggle, you know. And so I'm saying that there's a place for the form of sound words. As I said in the first teaching on this topic, yes, I understand that there's a problem when you have the form and not the power. There's a problem when all you emphasize is just dry doctrinal understanding and it's not coupled with a serious hunger for a relationship with God and the freedom to live in that relationship in body ministry and in just letting the Holy Spirit lead the meeting and understanding the the dimensions that the Spirit of God can manifest in a church meeting, you know? But even so, it also is possible that you overemphasize the power as you think it is. You know, we got the power, quote-unquote, but it's totally outside sound word, sound doctrine, and it's in the space of deception. And so I'm going to give you the titles of a few catechal works, and in doing so, I'm going to show you that they lean on 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Here's one by the Church of Ireland Archbishop Scholar James Usher. The principles of Christian religion with a brief method of the doctrine thereof. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, first printed in 1654. So there's a minister of God, James Usher, not exactly directly in my tradition, but a worthy minister of God, an extraordinary scholar, well-known in church history. And I'm showing you, if you appreciate that man's ministry, if you want to follow his example, he wrote an entire book that was a catechal work that he felt would help God's people. And he quotes on the cover page, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 13, as the biblical text or substantiation for that effort. Here's another one by A.C. Whitmer, published in 1878. Notes on the Heidelberg Catechism for Parents, Teachers, and Catechumens by the Reverend A.C. Whitmer. And in the introduction, he gives us that same passage. I won't quote it again. It's 2 Timothy 1.13. What I'm demonstrating here is that not only do I believe the apostles themselves did catechize the churches, 
But subsequent to the Apostolic Age, we have representations of this sort of thing. An early one is the Didache, and then as our previous author, Joel Beakey, stated, we have representations of this all through the patristic period. And then, of course, we do have it in the Middle Ages to some extent. They're not very good because they're largely Catholic-oriented. But then we have them revived, strongly revived in the Reformation era. They're very, very strong in the Reformed churches to this day, catechal exercises and works and so on. And it interests me to see how many men have seen the relevance of this idea of the form of sound words coupled with Hebrews 5.12 and other locations and seeing that this is something God calls us to do. And so I'm going to essentially complete today's study, though it'll take us a little bit more time than just a couple of minutes, by giving you examples of what the first few questions of various catechal works sound like, what they are, what they would read if you had them in your hands, how they would read if your eyes were upon the page. I want you to know that this concept of catechizing has been taken up by all sorts of different interests. I mean, you can get the camper's Bible. Have you ever heard of that sort of thing? I mean, it is a little blasphemous, perhaps, but you pick just about any topic and you can get a book on it that's called, you know, the sower's Bible or the camper's Bible or the photographer's Bible. And, and there's a similar phenomenon as it comes to catechizing. And so my first example, just to give you one in that domain, is the Pocket Catechism of the Constitution of the United States. It's first published in 1828. And this is its first set of questions. Question one, in what country do you live? Answer, in the United States of America. Now, let me just state, this is a serious work. This is to help immigrants to understand where they're coming and what this nation is all about, to learn the Constitution of the United States. Question two, why is this country called the United States? Answer, because it is made up of a number of states which were once separate, but afterward agreed to unite together. Now, our project obviously is not preaching the Constitution of the United States. If it were, at that point in our catechal exercise, I would need to expand upon the answers to that second question and say a little bit more about the word agreed. I don't think the southern states would say that they agreed. I don't think some of the Federalist ideas, you know, that people argue about with Abraham Lincoln and so on that came into play, and I'm not taking sides one way or the other, but I'm trying to state that when we work through these questions, we realize we've got to sort through some of this stuff, and it forces us to think through these issues, as opposed to just be satisfied preaching week to week what fancies us. You know what I'm trying to say? It forces you to think through the issues that the Bible raises. What do we mean by a state? That's question three. I mean any district or country whose people are all under one government. Question four. Had then the different states which united together each a government of its own? Answer, yes. But they agreed to put themselves all under one general government. I don't know if Jefferson would put it quite that way, but uh, we'll leave it there. I'm not going to give you any more examples. You get the idea that you can find catechisms on a sundry number of topics. I'm going to start by presenting some really basic in the milk category, which is a necessary category 
uh, for all of us by which to learn the Word of God. We are to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. And especially if we're training a young heart, you need to know how to find the milk for, for the young heart that's being trained. And so I look for these sort of things. I always have. Um, but here's an example. This was written in 1868. Child's Catechism on the Bible. And it reads like this. Introductory questions. What is the best of all books? Answer. The Bible. What is the Bible sometimes called? Answer. The Holy Scriptures. What else is it called? Answer. The Word of God. Who wrote this book? Holy men of God. Who told them to write it? They were moved by the Holy Spirit. How is the Bible divided into two parts? What is the first part called? The Old Testament. What is the second part called? The New Testament. How is the Old Testament divided into books, chapters, and verses? We'll stop there. But imagine taking an evening or a morning or some time where you find some space and bringing your child through those series of questions, seeing if they get it, then asking them it again the next day. You do that a couple of times and they're going to start to become biblically literate. So somewhere there's a value to this concept. Here's another work. A catechism explanatory of the leading truths of the gospel with copious scripture proofs, principally for the use of Sunday and other schools, by the Reverend Daniel Bagot. I would think he would want his name pronounced that as opposed to Bagot. Maybe not, but I did what I thought it should be. And it reads as follows. Again, this is the, you know, the first things you read you know, the first questions or the first statement and then the first question. So it reads like this. A catechism. It is intended that the texts referred to in the following catechism should be committed to memory by the learner and questions founded upon them be proposed by the teacher. Do you get that? So you're supposed to learn these questions and then the teacher is going to quiz you. And we're going to find out if you're learning your Bible or not. And if you think that's just way too formal... I would point you back to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. You need to hold fast to the form of sound words. Question 1. What is the meaning of the gospel? Do you know? Answer. It is compounded of two words, good and spell, which signifies glad tidings. And then verses are given. We won't digress into that. Supporting verses are given for that claim. It's good speech, good spell. Good to know. Question two, what is the gospel? Answer, the revelation or message of free salvation through the mercy of God in Christ Jesus to fallen men. Imagine if little Melody could snap that out on a flash or any young child or any of us. That's useful. That's useful. Is it not the case that you could probably ask many members in the church, what is the gospel? And they'd be fetching around to try to find a way to articulate it in an effective manner. Well, that's a nice, helpful statement that is then supported by scriptural passages again. Question number three. In what parts of scripture do you find some of the fullest and clearest statements of the gospel? This answer is simply a series of passages. I'm not going to list them now. It's not the purpose of the study. If you're interested, get the PDF. Question number four. What is the state of man by nature? Answer. He is in a state of guilt, condemnation, and spiritual death. And then Genesis 6, 5, Jeremiah 
27 fourths in Roman numerals, so I have to look at it. Matthew 15, 19, Romans 5, 16 and 18, Romans 8, 7, Ephesians 2, 1 and 3. So I just trailed off at question four. You, you see what I'm doing here. I'm just giving you a sampling. These are the opening questions. You see the variation in how people approach catechizing. None of those, if you are familiar with the famous first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, none of them started that way. And I'm trying to show you, you don't have to start in one particular way. It sort of depends on what you're after. There's, there's freedom and liberty in this, in my view. Here's another catechism. This one was published in 1831. It's called The Young Communicants Catechism by two ministers, John Willison, and then Questions in Council for Young Converts were written by Ashbel Green. It begins with this. This is how this catechism starts. Concerning man's natural estate. That's that's their entry point, you know. We're going to catechize the church. Where should we start? We could start with, some do. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm trying to engage your thoughts. We could start with, what are the books of the Holy Scripture? Basically, what's the canon? Some think you should just start with that. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying different starting points will be discovered in the various uh, catechisms. Okay, concerning man's natural estate. Question. And what estate or what state, what condition, spiritual condition, or, or personal condition maybe, you know, your, whole, your entire being, in what state were you born? Answer, in a woeful, miserable estate, wanting or lacking the image of God and His favor, which man at first had, and with a sinful nature, prone to what is evil, backward to what is good, and exposed to the wrath of God both here and hereafter. Question, how came you to be born in this estate or condition? Answer, because of my descent from sinful Adam, who fell from his happiness by breaking covenant with God and incurring the penalty thereof, whereby he lost all his grace and was wholly unable to recover himself. Question three, is fallen man left without hope in this miserable state? Answer, no. There is a noble remedy provided through the old covenant to be broken and dissolved. There is an excellent new covenant contrived, yea, revealed and tendered unto lost sinners of mankind. Now there's a case where we have some archaic language, in my estimation, in a catechism that if we were to use the effort, the labor that went into this catechism, rather than try to reinvent the wheel, let's say if we chose to use this one to teach our children from or teach the church, then we would do what many ministers have done over the centuries. Not every minister who catechizes the church writes his own catechism. I'm not going to. I'm going to be somewhat eclectic, ultimately, you know, using the various resources. But what they would do is they would take these statements, questions and answers, and they would preach sermons on them. You know, expand upon them. I'll give you an example of that before we're through. Here's a catechism from one of the Puritans, William Gouge. This was published in 1635. It's entitled, A Short Catechism, wherein are briefly handled the fundamental principles of the Christian religion needful to be known by all Christians before they be admitted to the Lord's table, whereunto are added sundry prayers, the seventh edition corrected and enlarged by William Gouge. Praise God. Hope I'm not boring you. 
I love to share with God's people. You know, these are some of the titles. These are the, some of the things that godly men cared about. It wouldn't be a bad idea to be a little curious about. Maybe they had a point, you know, to communicate to people what you need to know before you come to the Lord's table over against just waltzing into church, feeling you can do whatever you want, you know, and just come to the Lord's table or keep coming back. It doesn't matter how you conduct yourself. It starts like this. Question. What is everyone bound to know? That's an interesting way to start your catechal work to the church. What is everyone bound to know? You see how the Lord evidently led different men at different times to approach instructing the church from different angles? It's really interesting. The answer, God himself. Question two, where is this knowledge to be gained? Answer, from the Holy Scriptures contained in the Old and New Testament. Question three, who is the author of those scriptures? Answer, the Holy Spirit of God who inspired holy men to write. Question four, what is God? Answer, a spirit of infinite perfection. Question five, how many gods are there? Only one, but distinguished into three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now here is a Puritan by the name of William Gouge, very well educated, got plenty of things to do, and yet he writes a catechism in that manner. Because in his mind, he's a serious minister of God, not just playing games, wasting time, nothing else to do, just doodle some questions on a piece of scrap paper. No, these men felt that this is how you serve God's people, to kind of break these things down. And indeed, I'm pointing out that in this case, as has been the case, these are men who had a heart for the younger people and wanted to train up the younger people to understand their Bibles. I have one further example in this genre it was published in 1839 by William Edward Wyatt. It's entitled The Scriptural Exposition of the Church Catechism Containing the Young Christian's Account of the Doctrines and Duties of His Religion and of Those Divine Authorities Upon Which He Builds His Faith and Practice. Question 1. By what means can we most effectively promote the honor of God, the interest of religion, and the present and future happiness of mankind? Answer. How about this? By laying the foundation of a sound faith in and good life in the minds of those who are children in age and understanding. To whom does this duty chiefly belong? Answer. To parents, householders, ministers, sureties in baptism, teachers of schools, who are all obliged in their respective stations to see that those under their charge who stand in need of such education be catechized, that is to say, instructed in the principles of true religion and virtuously brought up to lead a godly and a Christian life. Well, hallelujah. I turn my attention now to some catechisms that you would not want to follow. That also happens in religion. Here is a Unitarian catechism that was published in 1890. I wonder if you would detect that there's something wrong with this catechism. Question one, how old is religion? Answer, as old as man. Question two, what is religion? Answer, it is man's effort to get into right relations with God. Question three, analyze and define religion. Answer, man feels himself surrounded by mysterious forces. So, one, 
He thinks out some idea or theory of these forces and of himself as related to them. Two, he has certain feelings and emotions in accord with his thoughts, such as awe, fear, reverence, love. Three, his thoughts and feelings tend to embody or incarnate themselves to find some outward expression. So there are altars, temples, sacrifices, scriptures, prayers, hymns, etc. The nature of these always depends on the nature of the thoughts and feelings. Man tries to do what he thinks his God wants him to do. That is, such things as will put him into favorable relations with his God. So we see, as it is said in answer 2, that religion is man's effort to get into right relations with God. Question 4. Why have there been so many religions? Answer. Because men have had so many ways of thinking about and interpreting the world and its mysterious forces. 5. Have all the religions except Christianity been false? Answer. No. None of them have been wholly false. Question 6. Is Christianity all true? No. Though the best and highest of all religions, it is yet imperfect. Question 7. What would be a perfect religion? Answer. One perfectly true in its teachings and perfectly lived out in action. Question 8. I end with this. Can we hope for such a religion? Answer. Only when men become perfectly wise and good. That would be a cold day in hell, let me tell you. (laughs) But you know, you work through that, and then I'm going to get into some more subtly errant confessions or catechisms. And to my heart, if that's the competition out there, and if those sort of instruments can be used effectively to nail ideas down into our children, I don't think it's a bad idea to have something that stands against those answers, that puts it in our view, in a correspondingly clear and lucid manner. So I'm going to give you an Arminian confession of 1621. Today's study is not to digress into what Arminianism is and the pros and cons, if there are any pros, etc., etc. I just want you to know there are confessions and catechisms from many traditions and flavors of Christian expression. So the Arminian Confession starts with chapter 1. On the sacred scripture, its authority, perfection, and perspicuity. Lovely place to start. I have no problem with that. I guess I'll say ahead of time, I don't have an overt problem with this first statement from this Arminian Confession. And that is exactly my concern. It's not overtly errant, but the Arminian angle is detected in the way in which their catechism is formulated. It sounds like this. Whoever desires to duly honor God, I mean, even there, you first desire to duly honor God. It's not that God, by His grace, calls a dead sinner out of, you know, out of rebellion into His favor, but let's continue. Whoever desires to duly honor God and certainly and undoubtedly obtain eternal salvation... Before all else, it is necessary that he believe that God is. Well, maybe before all else, all else, it'd be necessary that he were elected from the foundations of the world, but not to these Arminians. And that he is a generous rewarder of those who seek him. You know, you're seeking him, he's going to reward you with salvation. You follow what I'm saying? 
Therefore, he must conform himself to the rule and square which was given and prescribed by the true God himself, the supreme legislator, and stand firm upon the promise of eternal life through undoubting faith. I would just observe, though I understand you can only process so much, and it's not my intention that you process all of these statements, and that's, I'm not seeking to respond to them, but I'm trying to show you there's an Arminian initial statement that is designed to get your heart oriented as a catechumen, as someone who's trying to understand the Christian faith. And I'm thankful that I can juxtapose against that something like the Westminster Confession of Faith on these same questions. And you can have an alternate orientation in your mind about what the Word of God is all about that can be very liberating and strengthening when it emphasizes the sovereignty of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And you can decide for yourself which one is truer to the scriptural passages themselves. But until we declare ourselves on what we believe, then you might not know what church you should belong to or what theological persuasion is more closely aligned to the scriptures themselves. That was from an Arminian tradition. Here's one from a Catholic tradition. This is from the most reverend Dr. James Butler one time Bishop of Cashel in Ireland. His catechism, which was released in 1775, starts with the Apostles' Creed. I told you I would read the Apostles' Creed. I think there's reason to respect it in many ways, but I'll highlight something that won't surprise you, that we would have to give some more thought to, than simply the way in which it's stated. I'm not here to teach on the Apostles' Creed. I don't anticipate that we'll use it much except for perhaps referencing it when we teach on you know some the doctrine of god for example but it is an ancient creed it goes way back to the first century that's why it's called the apostles creed it's not because the apostles actually wrote it nobody really argues that seriously but it might have been some representation of the form of sound words that you know got carried over into the next generations it reads like this I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So do the Jews. But then it goes on to say, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. You need to confess that. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. I got that highlighted as we need to think that through. He descended into hell the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. That's how this Catholic bishop begins his catechism and then follows it immediately with what is called a general confession. I don't know if I could pronounce this properly. I assume it's a Latin term, the confetior, C-O-N-F-I-T-E-O-R, but it means the general confession, because it says the confetior or general confession, and it sounds like this. I mean, when you read the Apostles' Creed, if you were going to work through this catechism, you might be, okay, you know, that's, 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 that's helpful. But then we get into this. I confess to Almighty God, to the blessed 
Mary ever virgin, to blessed Michael the archangel, to blessed John the Baptist, to the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and to all saints, that I have sinned exceedingly, and just did, no, I added that, and thought, word and deed, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, there's your mea culpa, by the way, if you don't know that, Therefore I beseech, blessed Mary, ever virgin, blessed Michael, the archangel, blessed John the Baptist, the holy apostles, Peter and Paul, and all the saints, to pray to the Lord our God for me. The Almighty God have mercy on me and forgive me my sins and bring me to everlasting life. Thank God for the Westminster Shorter Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, and the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Not that I'm aligning myself only with those instruments, but I wasn't back there to write something, and nor were you. And how well I would improve upon the Westminster Confession from scratch is a very open question. Amen? You know, I'm not exactly the sum total of the brilliant minds of all those Puritans that put that together in such a pithy or such an effective, lucid manner. Here is a confession from the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was published in Moscow in 1839. And it starts in this way. And by the way, in its title page, it also quotes from 2 Timothy 1.13, just for your interest. It sees itself as, you know, fulfilling that duty to engage in the form of sound words. Question one, what is an Orthodox catechism? An Orthodox Catechism is an instruction in the Orthodox Christian faith to be taught to every Christian to enable him to please God and to save his own soul. What is meant by the word Catechism? It is a Greek word signifying instruction or oral teaching and has been used ever since the Apostles' times to denote the primary instruction in the Orthodox faith which is needful for every Christian. And then some passages are given. Here is a catechism that was printed on the island of Cyprus in 1903. What particular Orthodox church do you suppose it represents? The Greek Orthodox Church. Question one, what is a catechism? Sounds a little bit like the Eastern Orthodox Church, doesn't it? Because there would be influences, just like there have been in the Reformed tradition of catechizing. Answer, catechism means the lessons which teaches us what our duties toward God are. Question two, what are our duties toward God and how many are they? Answer, our duties toward God are three. First, that we should have faith in Him. Second, that we should adore and serve Him, and thirdly, that we should obey His will. Question. Who revealed to us these three duties of ours? Answer. God Himself revealed these duties to different holy men who also wrote them down. Question. What is the book called in which the holy men wrote the Word of God? Answer. The Holy Scriptures. Obviously, I don't agree with all of that, But I do want to state that one of the most important things I want to communicate to anybody new in the faith, that would often be someone who's younger, I want to communicate to them how special the Bible is. And the effort to clarify that in these confessions that I've just read to you, that itself is 
good work to clarify that we learn about God from the Holy Scriptures. What are the Holy Scriptures? Not just anything out there. They are these books. This is the book of God. Well, let's take something from the Church of England. Moving away from Catholicism. You know, we had Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy. Now let's go to the 39 articles of the Church of England published in 1571. That was under Henry VIII. You might know something of the history of that with Thomas Cranmer and Matthew Parker. The famous 39 articles begins with Of Faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body parts or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The 39 Articles begins with a statement on the Holy Trinity. Other confessions don't. Some start with, what is the Bible? Some start with, what is man's duty to God? Some start with, what's the purpose of life? Here is the Augsburg Confession that harkens back to Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and Justice Jonas, published in 1530. You'll get a different flavor from the Augsburg Confession. It's a well-known Lutheran confession. Article 1, of God. They start with God as well, just like the 39 Articles. Or you could vice versa it, right? Because the Augsburg came first, you know. But I was moving away from Catholicism, and now I'm into Lutheranism. I'm not saying Lutheranism is close to Catholicism. That's not so much my point. Don't read into what I'm doing, please. Of God, the churches with common consent among us do teach that the decree of the Nicene Synod concerning the unity of the divine essence and of the three persons is true. Do you feel the flavor differently already? I mean, my first thought is, is thanks, but I'm not sure that's so helpful. But I'll keep reading. I mean, I'm not trying to be critical. I mean, I am, I am critiquing, but I'm not trying to be caustically critical. What you're going to find is there's this scholastic element to this Lutheran confession, which serves some people, but it's not going to be helpful, at least for what I'm doing, because I want it to be more generally accessible. And, you know, to assume from your first answer that people even know what the Nicene Synod had to say is quite an assumption. I'm not denigrating it for some value. I'm just showing you how these different approaches manifest themselves in the literature over the eras. Okay, so concerning the unity of the divine essence and of the three persons is true. In other words, the Nicene, you know, creed is true, and without doubt to be believed, to wit, which is to say that is, that there is one divine essence which is called and is God, eternal, without body, indivisible, of infinite power, wisdom, goodness, the creator and preserver of all things, visible and invisible, and that yet there be three persons of the same essence and power, who also are co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that cleaned things up a little bit, didn't it? And as I said, and as I hope is the case when I started, yes, this is going to be a formal teaching in many respects, because we're dealing with the forms of sound doctrine. 
And I'm reading to you different instantiations of this, but I stated that hopefully you will still find edification. Not so much that we're teaching and expanding and pouring this edification into you in one long draught, but just hearing how the biblical ideas have been narrowed into effective statements is edifying in my estimation. I'll give you now an old Anabaptist confession from Swiss Anabaptist, published in 1527. See if you can't feel something of the, the origin of where this confession comes from. In other words, it comes from the Anabaptists. And this is how their catechism, their confession starts. First, not first, what is the whole duty of man? Not first, who is God? Not first, what is the Bible? Not first, what is the purpose of life? First, learn concerning baptism. Baptism ought to be administered to all who have been taught repentance and a change of life and in truth believe their sins to have been blotted out through Christ and who wholly wish to walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who wish to be buried with Him into death that they may be able to rise with Him again. To all, then, who ask baptism after this manner and make the request of us for themselves... We administer it. By these means are excluded all baptism of infants, the supreme abomination of the Roman pontiff. For this article we have the testimony and strength of Scripture. We have also the practice of the apostles, which we shall preserve with simplicity and at the same time with firmness. For we have been made sure from the Bible. And so there's a sampling from various church traditions. Now, as we tend toward the end of this teaching on the form of sound words, taking the time to give you a sampling as a part of this overall project of various confessions and catechisms, I'm going to give you the first articles or the first questions of the Belgic Confession of 1559, the Heidelberg Confession of 1563 in the canons of Dort of, let's say, 1618. Because these are still widely used today. They are known as the three forms of unity. They are in Dutch Reformed and other Reformed circles. I'm not going to read the historic background of the Belgian Confession in this study. I'm simply going to read you the first article. Their first article starts like this. There is only one God. That's how their catechism starts. In other words... When we start our Upper Room Christian Assembly Catechism, we're going to choose a place to start. And I'm not saying there's only one right way. I'm trying to show you I don't hold that. I'm not even saying you have to have the question-answer method. What I am saying, you need to sound down the Word of God in a systematic, structured fashion that is memorable so that the young or unlearned can grab a hold of it and begin to build their faith and grow roots of righteousness. That's what I'm saying. But in this case, the Belgian Confession, which is worth knowing, I certainly will draw from the three forms of unity in the Westminster Standards, absolutely, as well as Thomas Watson's work, which is a commentary on the Shorter Catechism, by the way, and there are many worthy commentaries. I'll be drawing from these sources as I proceed to teach. 
Article 1 of the Belgic Confession, there is only one God. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God and that He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Here's the opening of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. And I will likely follow this, I think we have the time, with a few remarks from a well-known aide to the Heidelberg Catechism, that is to say, taking the Catechism, and that's what it's intended for, by the way. Let me expand on that. These Catechisms are intended to be taught from. That is to say, if it's in a question-answer form, you ask the question, you give the answer, then you give the scriptural proofs, then you expand on what is being stated in the answer and help the church to grasp it more effectively. And so, I'll probably read to you some of Otto Telemann's expanded remarks on the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I really like this opening question. I really like this. It's not the one I'm going to start with as far as I understand God's leading, but not because I couldn't. Please understand. We're going to have to get to this sort of thing sooner or later, whether we start with it or not. I like this. What is the only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Telemann expands on this and says, In what true comfort consists. Man, ever since sin came into the world, and because of sin, is subject to the miseries of life. He gives passages, Genesis 3, 16-19, pain, grief, thorns and thistles, sweat of the brow, and to the terrors of death, Job eighteen fourteen, the king of terrors, Hebrews 2, and verse 15, fear of death, Hebrews 10, 27, a fearful looking for of judgment, so both body and soul suffer because they are bound together. When your soul suffers, your body suffers. When your body suffers, your soul's impacted. The greatest misery is the misery of sin. Over against all this, we need comfort, both in life and death. And he gives several passages. Comfort is a calming, a stirring to life, a setting upright of the soul in which, however, we are sensible of the pains and needs of the body. He gives Matthew 11, Come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. False comfort is sought in A, in riches and luxury. He gives several passages. In health of body, he gives several passages. In obstinacy, he gives passages, living in our pride. In dissipation by worldly pleasures, amusement, and drunkenness. He gives several passages. 
I live how long I know not. I die and when I know not. I go and where I know not. I wonder that yet I am happy. And then the last he gives for where do false comforts come? In other men. As if they could dissipate anxiety and sorrow in anyone. And he gives passages to show that you can't find this comfort from other men. By all these, comforts fail to be permanent. They only make the evil worse than before. True comfort must be suitable to all cases and durable for all time. There is only one true comfort, and it consists in this, that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus. Luke ten forty two. Christ is promised as the heathen's comfort in Luke two twenty five. He is awaited as the comfort of Israel. I am my own master means the same as I am my own slave. From this arises the slavery of sin, Romans 6.20, and many other passages. As long as I am my own and must rely on myself alone, I must provide for myself. Cares bring and increase trouble, but give no comfort. But if Christ is my Lord and I am His property, He therefore cares for me, And this stills all care and unrest and gives the true comfort. And then he gives many passages. Now I give you the opening of the canons of Dort. First head of doctrine, divine election and reprobation. You see, the canons start with election. That's how they start. Article 1. All men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse, and are deserving of eternal death. God would have done no injustice by leaving them all to perish and delivering them over to condemnation on account of sin, according to the words of the Apostle, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God, Romans 3 and verse 19, and for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 good way to get your Bible under your belt. Figure out these different passages that make these basic points. And so I end with the famous words of the Shorter Catechism from a work by a Scottish minister who wrote a commentary on the Shorter Catechism in 1883. His name is Alexander White. He wrote a number of other interesting works, one on the characters of Pilgrim's Progress, for example, that's worth pursuing. I have here his commentary that follows the first question and first answer, the Westminster Confession, but we're not going to get into that today, not because of a lack of time, simply because of what this teaching has been all about in terms of its purpose, and it is to present to you various forms in which sound doctrine have been shaped by various godly men over the centuries. And I end with what for many would be a famous formulation of the first question and answer of a catechism that is much longer than this first question and answer, but the entire catechism is designed to instruct the hearts of God's people. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever.